Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. Did you know that the youngest part of the Bible is nearly 2,000 years old? How can such an ancient book have any relevance to our complex and technologically advanced world? I wonder, how would you answer this objection? How would you respond to somebody who said, Why do you believe in the Bible? It's just too antiquated. Well, it certainly is undeniable that our world is so much different from the nomadic shepherds of three millennia ago. However, if you think about it, science, political innovations, and technology have really failed to generate a golden age of tranquility and prosperity. Our world today is just as fragmented and fraught with dysfunction and justice as ever. The internet has enabled us to access an unprecedented amount of information from all around the world quickly and cheaply, sure. However, the net effect has led to information overload as searchers find themselves paralyzed by all of the authoritative perspectives and experts clamoring for attention. Increasingly, people are turning to ancient analog faiths for answers in our digital age. The luster of virtual reality has worn off for many as they find their souls empty and isolated after binging on the dainties of television shows and social media. Many are looking for something real, something tried and tested, something with substance. This is where the Bible has fresh appeal, at least I believe, for our age. When we compare the scriptures to other historical books, they stand head and shoulders above them and that they are better preserved, more accessible, and more practical than the others. Timeless moral principles, powerful motivation, and encouraging hope make the Bible an elixir to the souls of countless readers worldwide. Listen in as we discuss how the Bible remains relevant and powerful in our time. Here now is The Bible is Too Antiquated. Welcome to Offscript, everyone. We're so glad you're here on a new year to consider another objection to Christianity. Yay! Happy New Year's! We're so glad it's a new year. I don't know if we're glad. Are we glad it's a new year? Yeah, we are glad it's a new year. 2016 (laughs) was rough. Yeah. Well, welcome to 2017. Sometimes people say, we've moved beyond the Bible scientifically, morally, technologically, so we can't trust some old book to tell us how to think. And so what do you guys think about that? I remember the first time I ever witnessed to someone, I was like 15, and I witnessed to another kid who was like 14 or something. Uh-huh. And um, he like didn't even believe I was Christian. And I was so surprised by that. And I was like, why don't you think I'm a Christian? And he's like, you're too young. And I said, no, I'm very authentically Christian. I think many of us have very religious grandmothers and we've sort of seen dedication to Christianity dying out with our parents. And it is fairly uncommon to meet a dedicated Christian at our age. But I think Uh, A lot of millennials have this idea that Christianity is a sinking ship. We are kind of moving into what's known as the post-Christian era. Uh, We see that happening in Europe, and it seems to be happening in the States today. And with some of our earlier off-script episodes, we talked about defeaters, which is the way you look at something that makes it impossible for you to accept it. And we have a lot of those with our culture today regarding Christianity. And I find with a lot of millennials um, to this day, when I share the gospel with them, that a huge defeater is that Christianity is a sinking ship and whether or not the Bible uh, is true and 
and makes valid points and has been reliably preserved. Christianity is a sinking ship. Why would I want to jump on board that? What you said there, Rose, reminds me of this general sense that a lot of people have, that sociologists in particular, that as a nation gets more educated and wealthy, they become more secular. And that has been a theory that a lot of people have agreed with for a long time. However, in America, that doesn't seem to be the case. There was a Pew study not too long ago where they basically were asking about people's faith. And uh, I'm just going to quote to you from Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. He writes, as the Pew study proves, religion is on the rise and the emergence of the more strident and outspoken new atheists may be in fact a reaction to the persistence and even resurgence of vibrant religion nor is the flourishing of faith happening only among less educated people over the last generation philosophers such as alistair mcintyre charles taylor and alvin plantinga have produced a major body of scholarly work supporting belief in God and critiquing modern secularism in ways that are not easy to answer. Demographers tell us the 21st century will be less secular than the 20th. There have been seismic religious shifts towards Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa and China, while evangelicalism and Pentecostalism have grown exponentially in Latin America. Even in the United States, the growth of the, quote, nuns has been mainly among those who had been more nominal in their relationship to faith while the devoutly religious in the United States and Europe are growing. And then he, he ends with, belief in God makes sense to four out of five people in the world and will continue to do so in the foreseeable future. And it, this is all from his chapter, Isn't Religion Going Away? Which is funny because in our context here in upstate New York, where we're recording the show and where we, I think, have pretty much all lived most of our lives, mm -hmm. This is a very post-Christian place. In fact, according to George Barna and his survey, this is the most post-Christian city in the United States. So we might have a skewed perception of what the country is like. And at the same time, I think you're right that young people tend to be less likely to be religious or take their faith seriously. A lot of times people will get interested in, in such matters in their college years or when they get married, or when they have kids, or when those kids get to that age where the parents say, well, shouldn't we be plugged into some sort of spiritual community? Wouldn't that be good for our kids? So maybe this is sort of like a natural progression people go through anyhow along the way. Yeah, or when you know they live their life the way that they want to live for so long, and it's empty. And, and you, hit, they, you hit your head enough times yeah, against the and wall. Then, and then you, you start to like, oh, well, maybe this is something yeah. I should explore. Yeah. So it, it could just be the, the age that you were at the conversation or our particular geography here, our demographics here, because this is a very post-Catholic area. Mm -hmm. But I think across the United States and certainly across the world, religion is rising. It's not uh, shrinking. And Well, isn't that what Charles Taylor's book's about, Secular Age? Right. Is how there's sort of this unfulfilled desire to get in touch with the spiritual side of life. Yeah. I mean, his book is called Secular Age, and the way he defines secularism is it's not 
no religion or no religious impulse or no spirituality, but uncertainty regarding truth claims in general. Mm. Mm. And so if you want to define seculars as uncertainty about truth claims, then yeah, we got all kinds of that. Yeah. Yeah. We're a very skeptical society and not for no reason either. I mean, we've seen so many people fall from grace in so many different areas. And, and science has failed us too. I mean, science was supposed to give us the golden age in the 20th century. Mm. And instead of giving us the golden age where we could trust the sociologists to tell us how to organize our society, and we could trust the philosophers to tell us how to think, and we can trust the physicists to tell us the, the way the universe was, what ended up happening was incredible social revolutions that made big promises that it never delivered on. And our, our technologists were inventing sophisticated weapons that we just used to kill each other with. And Pluto died, as far as the astronomers are concerned. And Pluto was <laughs> great. But my point is, we didn't get a golden age in the 20th century. What we got was a bloody age, where we killed each other more efficiently, and we were less tolerant of each other. And science has failed to give us the, the golden age. You know, what you said about uh, technologists, I, I, I bring that into, you know, we're in the information age now. And that phrase is a bit of a misnomer because with the amount of information that is available, we have the world's knowledge at our fingertips. And there is so much information out there, so much conflicting quote unquote evidence. There is any number of resources to explore every permutation of how to live your life, how to worship your God, that it's had the opposite effect that you would think. Having all this information at your fingertips has worked against millennials because they're spoiled for choice. There's so much out there and it's daunting to sift through it all, mm -hmm. to know what is correct and what is false. And the internet, I think, is, has, it's, it was supposed to democratize sort of modern life and it has in many ways, but I think it also has the effect of sensory overload, information overload. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The problem with the internet is you never know if you can trust the page you're on. And a lot of times we make that decision of, of what we can trust and what we can't trust on the basis of the graphic design of the page. Yeah, Rose. That is, that is correct. Because <laughs> if they hire a good graphic designer, so the you are the, the woman behind the curtain, the one wielding <laughs> yeah. the true power. It's my job to make people believe it. And if it looks good on your mobile device, you better really believe it. Right, right. So I think there is a lot of uncertainty as far as what to trust. As far as the Bible is concerned, I, I do want to affirm what Rose said, that there is this stigma about the Bible. I remember having a conversation with a woman once who said, I don't need a book to tell me what to think. And you have this idea that, how is it possible that some ancient book, I mean, the youngest part of the Bible is over 1,900 years old. That's the young parts. The old parts are over 3,000 years old, so far as we can tell. Why would we want to even consult the Bible at all? <laughs> what do you think? I think it's interesting. People look at Shakespeare and say that he was um, a master of the human nature and that he really understood how people ticked. And that was hundreds of years ago. Um, but you go back and you read Shakespeare, and if you can figure out what all those um, old English words mean or middle English words uh, mean, you really do want, you see that he had a great grasp of the human nature and he could use that um, to tell stories well. I believe so it is with the Bible. And the Bible um, is not 
a direct response to every single little trend. It is not changing with the times, although the way uh, we present Christianity uh, will change a little bit to every uh, generation so we can speak um, effectively to every generation. But the Bible is timeless. And it speaks to the human condition, no matter what type of thought is popular, uh, no matter what people are struggling with and focusing in the times, God does not change. Um, God is God is changeless. God is consistent. So is the human heart. We have superficial issues um, on the surface, but in the end, uh, we will always uh, be in need of salvation. We will always be in need of maybe simplified guidelines for living. Uh, thank you, Internet, for making us helpless with all the help that you give us. But the Bible has really given us that. And um, as insightful as Shakespeare was, the Bible is so much more so to the human heart um, and knowledge for how to live godly. I do believe it is timeless and applicable to um, so many of our social uh, issues and, and interpersonal issues and sin issues from every generation. And I also think as far as historicity of the Bible is concerned, if you look at you know the different uh, manuscripts and the ages between those different versions of the Bible, the ways in which scholars determine how true to an original copy of something is uh, throughout history and throughout time to the present day, the Bible is one of the most historical documents, if not the most historical document. Yeah. It, Sean it is, can talk yeah, to that. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Dan. The New Testament in particular is well attested. It has over 5,000 Greek manuscripts behind it. And when you compare it to other historical documents, it is embarrassingly well-preserved. What's the next closest? What, the Iliad or...? Yeah, I think so. I mean, off the top of my head, it's, it's like 574. Sean routinely <laughs> uses the word embarrassingly, too, which is so good. <laughs> Blows the competition out of the water. Plus, if you look at the, um, I mean, how many, how many, is there over 2,000 translations of the Bible? Or no, not 2,000. There's there's over... 531 yeah, languages. Yeah, there, there's over 500 translations of the Bible. And no, languages. Languages, yeah. Because like oh, in English, you have like yes. probably over 100 translations. Right. <clears throat> there's... You know, the Bible's been translated into over 500 languages, and well, this is a book that, like Sean said earlier, is goes back, you know, 3,000 years. The way that it's been preserved throughout three millennia is pretty astounding. There's no other historical document that has that kind of underpinning of, you know, historicity. I'm just looking this up on Wikipedia. It says that the Bible, the whole Bible, is in now in 554 different languages. And if you want to look at just the New Testament, it's over 1,000, 1,333. Just to give some perspective, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is in 174 languages. That's the next most translated. Now, there's, there's some... Oh, Pinocchio is over 260 languages. Most of the literature translated into many languages is by the Watchtower Society, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. They're very evangelistic, so they have really done a lot with getting their works into many languages. So they're they're like number two, three, and four. And then number five is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations, and that's 462 languages. So the Bible's still outperforming the United Nations wow. handedly. 
<laughs> Which is whose job it is too. <laughs> yeah, and they have all these resources, and, yeah. and the Bible's done often pro bono or yeah. just by some person who's dedicated their life to live with a tribe, and mm-hmm. sometimes even come up with an alphabet because they don't have one yet. You got to say to yourself, "Well, there's something weird going on with this book. Mm. It's just strange." And I mean, it has it's sticking power. Like Rose said, I mean, it, it translates throughout generations. It's yeah. the same problems, and Rose talked about this as well, but the same problems that existed 500 years ago exist today. Right. There might be, you know, different variations of those problems, and, you know, technology has certainly uh, played into that. But at the, at the root of it, you know, these issues of the heart, they're the same issues of the heart that are talked about in Proverbs. Yeah. And that's astounding when you look at how relatable the Bible has been and how it's still, you know, the best-selling book. And it's like we've just been talking, tops all the, as far as historical accuracy, tops all the charts. Yeah, it does. In the Bible, it says, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those kind of qualities are not going out of style. No. I mean... They're like blue jeans. Right. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) What did I just agree to? Amen, amen. (laughs) But take peace. I don't care if you live in an information overload age where you've got screens coming out of your pockets and you're overwhelmed with... Augmented reality. Augmented reality. (laughs) Uh, Or if you live in the middle of nowhere, mm. right? I mean, peace is something that's important. Yeah. And and look, you can live out in a cabin with another person and not have peace, mm-hmm. right? You can easily have strife with another person, especially if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you have no other community to talk to. You What's can easily that, get uh, on each other's nerves, right? That Proverbs verse about the contentious wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, peace is not going out of date. What Whatever the uh, technology is or the science is, we're still going to, our souls need peace. They still need joy, right? You, you don't want to walk around miserable your whole life. You, you, you want a spring in your step. You want joy. You want love in your life. You want patience. Look, patience is difficult. I struggle with patience, but I want it. Mm-hmm. Like I recognize it as something that I, that I need more of in my life. Same thing with peace, same thing with joy, same thing with love. And these, other, these other attributes as well or as they're called in the scriptures, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Oh, how wonderful is self-control when we, when we can get ourselves to stay consistent with something. Mm. I mean, just the power of building in a new habit into our lives or to have some discipline in some area of our lives, and you see the fruit of that grow over time, whether we're talking about in your, uh, your physical body or spiritually, or in relationships. I mean, self-control is huge. I mean, all these are just, they're not going out of style. And in an age like ours, as you so eloquently described it, Dan, of information overload and uncertainty, having some sort of anchor, having some sort of compass that tells us which direction is true north is extremely valuable because then we know how to compare other ideas to what the standard is we find in the scriptures. Mm. And look, if there is a God and God does have a book and that's how he chose to reveal truth, not all truth, but a lot of it, then it just makes sense that we would trust in it. Yeah. You know, it just follows logically from that. And 
we get tricked into this mindset, and we've talked about this on a previous off script on progress, right? Mm -hmm. That newer is always better. And the, the fact is newer is sometimes better and newer is sometimes worse. So we have to just measure something based on its, its virtues and its flaws yeah. rather than just be like, oh, well, there's this new self-help book out called The Secret. Mm. You remember that one? Yeah. And you have the law of attraction. It's like, if you just like have positive reinforcement, then these good things will happen. Well, that, that wave has passed and no one's talking about the secret anymore. Mm -hmm. And when the secret came out, it wasn't a secret then. Yeah. But, but it was hugely successful. It was, the book itself. It, yeah. So a lot. And so you, you see these different waves passing one after another, but the Bible itself is this great tidal wave that is just sort of hanging there in the right. air. It's suspended. It hasn't broke yet. Right. Right. The wave and, is still, you know, yeah. And, and so you still have 2 billion people that are like, no, I, I think I'm going to stick with what this book says. I mean, to varying degrees. I mean, not everyone has, has the same level of commitment to the Bible, but they're all sort of oriented towards it. And, and when you look at the Bible, there is so much wisdom there. You look at any of these Old Testament laws, mm -hmm. right? The year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. We've talked about that before. The idea of Sabbath. We've talked about that and the importance of taking a day to rest and not working yourself to the bone. And the medical laws of quarantine, of cleansing, of circumcision on the eighth day even. Yeah. You know, these quirky little rules are, are the food laws, like what food you can eat and what you can't eat. Mm -hmm. When you read it, it seems foreign and strange, but I, I just think a lot of times we're being too ethnocentric and judgmental. Right. We're saying, well... I don't think this has anything to teach me because I have a refrigerator and they right. thought this food was unclean and I eat bacon all the time. You know, and it's just like, well, hold on. From a Western point of view, it seems very arbitrary and sort of what impact would this have on, on my relationship with God? Yeah. And even bringing it into the New Testament, we talked about fruits of the spirit, but John 8, where Jesus says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And, uh, and then he, he tells you later on in that chapter how you extricate yourself from that situation. And the wisdom that's contained in that chapter is is very potent today. It's very potent in my life. And we all know people who, and I've fallen into this myself, where like you have a sin problem and you just don't see any way out. And people that don't know the word don't have this resource to go to, to get themselves out of that. And a lot of times what ends up happening is they you know, at best they go, you know, they go see a therapist or they go, they, you know, they get a book like The Secret or, you know, they, they try to find ways to rely on their own wisdom or somebody else's wisdom where the way to get out of any sort of destructive sin cycle you're in is contained in, the, in these verses where Jesus says, I'm just going to read John 8 verse 31 to 36. So Jesus saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The Jewish leaders that Jesus was talking to thought that Jesus was talking about literal enslavement where you're working for, for no pay. 
And Jesus the whole time is talking about this idea of being a slave to sin, where sin rules your life. This New Testament wisdom of giving you a blueprint for how to get out of these bad cycles that Christians and non-Christians find themselves in, the Bible addresses that. And the Bible has this wisdom, and it, it was applicable generations and generations ago, and it's applicable today. What I hear you saying is that if you do what the Bible says, if you live in accordance with how it teaches us to live, yeah. then it works. Yeah. So even if it's old, it still works. Right. Just like wheels. The whole wheel, <laughs> the wheel idea is old, but I got here today on four wheels. You don't have a hovercraft yet, Sean? Well, even the hovercrafts have wheels. <laughs> no, I mean like a real hovercraft. Yeah. It's an anti-intuitive idea because in this age that we live in, personal freedom is at a premium. We're supposed to be able to determine our own destiny. But a lot of times what ends up happening is we screw up our lives. And when we're at the helm, even, even the Bible addresses this counterintuitiveness where it says everyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And everyone who loses it for my sake will gain it. Yeah. The paradox of control. Mm. Really, wh what do we all want? We want human flourishing. We want fulfillment. We want to live in a way that is characterized by these fruit of the spirit. I was just reading love and joy and peace. We want to have relationships that bring us joy. We don't want to have dysfunction and sadness and chaos, right? How are you going to get that? Well, first of all, sometimes it's not, that's not possible. Sometimes you're in a situation, you might be in a, a, a marriage or you might be in a work situation where you, you're just not going to have 100% joy all day long, every day. You know what's so great about it is that the Bible doesn't ever promise that your circumstances are going to be like Disney World every day and lollipops and cotton candy and pink clouds. You know, real life, the Bible, then that's so... If, if that's your version of... Uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm thinking of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory here, but... Uh, the Bible doesn't portray life like that. Mm -hmm. mm. It takes it much more realistically. But then there's this inner reality of peace in the midst of chaos and yeah. joy in the midst of suffering, or, or at least hope in the midst of suffering. That's something that can really help us. When we look at this whole idea of modern issues of racism or cyber attacks or terrorism or market volatility or end of life issues or medical related issues, we might be tempted to say, well, what does the Bible have to teach me on this? Or how is it relevant to me? The issue is that all of these kinds of modern issues we face, we still need more principles to decide what to do and what not to do. So, for example, I mean, the most powerful moral principle that I've ever heard is simply this, love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. I mean, I know that sounds trite and Sunday schoolish, but it is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, to the degree because that it's, it's been so... co-opted by, I mean, that's the golden rule. Right. And it's right. been co-opted by modern society and it's been around for forever. Right. And a lot of people don't know that it's from the Bible. My point is there are so many different situations where that moral, that simple moral principle can give us guidance on what to do. The Bible gives us so many other ones too. Like, for example, speak the truth, work heartily unto the Lord, forgive, seek justice, be merciful. 
right? I mean, these sorts of moral principles that we see a thousand different ways in the narratives of Scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and also we see it in the poetry of the Psalms, we see it in Proverbs and these pithy aphorisms, we see it throughout the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, the teachings of the Apostle Paul to these different churches. You know, we, we have it strewn throughout Scripture in so many different ways, these same general moral principles, right, that the Bible really does provide us guidance. And yeah, they didn't have ventilator machines that kept people alive in the first century. They didn't. But we can still use those same moral principles to to reason through what we should do yeah. with somebody. It's hard to look at the wisdom in the Bible and the parables that Jesus spoke and characterize them as outdated or antiquated or backwards. Somebody who's you know a secularist or an anti-theist would be kind of out on a limb to look at that specific characteristic of the Bible, the wisdom that it has, and, and sort of criticize it for being not applicable to modern life. So it's interesting because our culture has inherited so many things from Christianity and many of these things that you said, Dan, on the golden rule that many people might not even know it's from the Bible. A lot of it has slipped into our culture and, you know, we're all supposed to be nice. We're supposed to be kind. Um, we're supposed to share. Um, these are things that we've heard. Um, I think, however, we as Christians can follow, you know, sort of these socially um, accepted things that we're supposed to do, we can follow them with so much more conviction and with so much joy because it's in keeping with the nature of God, with the character of God. Um, it's not just something that our parents have told us to do, but that we believe that, that that is living out who we are supposed to be as we imitate the righteousness of God and that we can do it much more passionately, uh, living, living for the God who has saved us. Yeah, we can do it with confidence that the way that we're living our life, like Sean says for his normal Restitutio podcast, the truth has nothing to fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. When I think of, just to get concrete for a moment, let's think about something like divorce. In New York State today, we have what's called no-fault divorce, which means, just like it sounds, you don't have to prove one person or the other is at fault. You can just call off the marriage. Now, traditional cultures tend to believe that divorce should be very hard. And a lot of modern cultures think divorce should be easy. And really the question comes down to not the science or sociology or some sort of objectively testable criteria, but what are your underpinning, underlying beliefs about human flourishing? Now, if you think the individual is the chief good, the principle to be put above others, then you will always want to put individual happiness over anything else. If you think the family unit is the basis for all social stability, then you're going to want to make it so that family units are cohesive and stay together. And it's very hard for them to break apart, right? And so like, how do you know which one to go with, right? (laughs) It causes so much fragmentation and suffering, especially for children of divorced parents. And what we see in the scripture is when they ask Jesus this question, because the Jewish folks of his time, of Jesus's time, they debated this subject. And there were some that thought divorce should be very easy, and others thought it should be a little bit harder. And then Jesus comes on the scene, he's like, no, it should be really hard, really hard. In fact, Jesus just says, just for adultery. 
And he, he recognized that adultery just breaks the, the marriage contract. That act is so morally destructive that the relationship can't come back for it. But like pretty much other than that, Jesus is like, stay married. Yeah. And they thought that was controversial in the first century. Mm-hmm. How much more 20 centuries later? But you know what? If you have that mindset, that's going to play itself out a couple of different ways. One, you're not just going to randomly get married to somebody that you think might work out. Yeah. You're going to take the whole wedding issue much more seriously. The whole idea of getting married is going to, you're going to weigh it differently. And when you do run into problems, the question is not, well, maybe we should just go our separate yeah, ways. Maybe there's something better out there. Maybe there's something better out there. Maybe we should go our separate ways. The question is, how are we going to fix this together? It's a totally different mindset. Yeah. And this is probably a good time to bring in the cross as well. The cross totally blows off the lid on so much conventional wisdom and dog-eat-dog mentality of retributive justice. Because what the cross says to us is that love is so deep and so nuclear that it can completely revolutionize someone's heart. And that's happened in my own heart. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see it all the time today where... Someone's sustained, self-sacrificial love does eventually make an enemy a friend or change a heart that you would think would never change. And there is an incredible power there that a lot of the time we just talk ourselves out of or we think to ourselves, oh, this situation is too far gone. No, it's not too far gone. I know a guy who got divorced and got remarried to the same girl and it, and it all worked out because of this self-sacrificial love, you know, yeah. or I know other people who there's been adultery, a genuine affair, and it went on for a while and the offender decided to repent and the victim decided to forgive that person. And they were able to reconstruct a new marriage mm-hmm. on the ashes of the old because of this commitment. Now, they, from Jesus' perspective, they can get out of it. Right. You know what I'm saying? And they chose to stay in it, you know, and, and, it, and it did work out. And this is 20 years later, still happily married. So there is so much more possible when we look at things from the perspective of what the Bible teaches about this incredible cross-shaped love of God manifested through, through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I always think of that quote from Martin Luther King where he says, you know, send your hooded perpetrators to our neighborhoods and drag us out and beat us and we will still love you. And he goes on, we will still love you. We will still love you, but be assured in the end, we will wear you down. Yeah. And the whole idea is that there is this incredible power of, of love that is not sentiment alone and it's not weakness, but it's strength. And look, Forcing somebody to do something because they have to or because you're holding a gun to them or because you're going to throw them in jail if they don't is not as powerful as convincing somebody to do it of their own free will. Mm-hmm. That's way more powerful. And so I feel like what the Bible gives us is not just a set of laws, right? What it gives us is, yeah, it does give, give us principles and guidance on, on how to live and what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, it does. But it also gives us, looking back at the cross, incredible motivation to do that mm-hmm. and a, a kind of optimism that living this way is actually going to do something and change people right now people have to be willing and open to that mm-hmm. change you know you're not going to force somebody but then there's also the motivation 
of the future coming kingdom to give us hope so that we can get through the tough times. Right. And so I feel like there's just so, uh, yeah, the Bible's old. All right. So what? Like I said, so is the wheel. That, that, that's completely irrelevant. Right. It's comp- the age of something is completely irrelevant. What matters is does it make sense? Does it work in my life? Look, it does work in our lives. We're three people sitting here today saying it works in our lives mm-hmm. in the 21st century. And none of us is a, at this table here is a Christian for 30 days, okay? We've been doing this for years. Mm-hmm. I speak for myself. I have tasted of the other side, right? I have been my own, I have been the captain of my own ship, and I thought I could pilot it better than Jesus. And I am a fairly capable person. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I still crashed. Like, and then I would get the ship out of the rocks and like patch it up with duct tape and then get going, and I would crash again. Mm. And I'm looking out for my own interest, and I still crash my own ship over and over again. And and it's like, you know, and that's really step one, right? I can't, God can help, right? And until you get to that place, I think you're just crashing your ship. And and, and the people who are better pilots than than me, I pity them. I I don't look up to them. I pity them because it's like they go longer and longer without crashing the ship. And so then... It, the crash would be worse because mm. they've got more speed behind them or whatever. I'm taking this analogy way too far, but my point <laughs> and is... And then they'll get a no-contest divorce or, or no-fault divorce. <laughs> and then they're going to get a divorce. Uh, but my point is the Bible works, the Bible makes sense, and the Bible has this really intriguing ancient wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I think it really can help us today in so many different situations. I think it's oldness, like a test. There's some sort of mystery about it. Like how can something so old continue throughout the eons to be still relevant? When we're talking about relevancy of it, of the Bible, that's its biggest strength is that the Bible, like we said, has not faded. People Mm -hmm. are still buying it. People are still reading it. People are still translating it. People are still mining it for the kernel inside the kernel of the truth in ancient texts. There are scholars who make their bread off of examining this ancient document. There's just so much there that people 3,000, 2,000 years later are still finding, seeking, searching for and applying to their lives. There's no other example, no other object or piece of media comes even close to that kind of track record. In the first century, um, I believe he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel in Acts 5 was kind of speaking about Christianity and you know what was going to happen with it. And he mentioned two false messiahs that had come around recently, both of whom had been killed and their followers had fallen away or been scattered. He said, don't interfere. Watch Christianity to see what will happen. It's a similar case. Their leader you know, has been killed. They have this resurrection story. He says, um, if it is of man, it will come to nothing. If it is God, mm. don't raise a finger to stop them, lest you be found to fight against God. Interesting that he said that um, in the first century, and then interesting to see what happened with Christianity, how Jesus Christ was radically different from these other false messiahs, how the movement continues today and has so many things to say. Going back a little bit into the conversation, Sean, it's interesting to talk about Jesus and the hard things he said about divorce. I look at it maybe from a different perspective as you guys, as a woman, I look at that as so out of his time um, when a wife was something that could so commonly be discarded because FYI, the divorce was a one-way divorce. In that case, a woman would not, I mean, I believe, right, Sean? woman would not divorce her husband, could not divorce her husband. Um, he was every. He was her bread and butter. 
Um, that would be like firing herself, essentially, kind of in that context. Jesus is radically uh, ahead of his time, and he is looking for the security of the woman. And then for, you know, for a covenant loving relationship is something that he's going for, for both ways that it should last. And, uh, he is it's almost progressive. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. He was so out of his time then, but you look back at this now and about how he approached it to the first century Jews who did not have that way of thinking. You look at that and you see the timelessness, um, and the love and the concern that he had. And you see that is a good way to live. And that dynamic still exists in a lot of Hasidic communities where a woman who wants a divorce for cause has to basically hire. I know there was a story a number of years ago about a group of Jewish men who for a fee would beat up your husband for you and make them sign what's called the get, which is the Jewish divorce document uh, for a woman. To your point, yes, it was it was a one-way street when it came mm-hmm. to divorce back then and in certain communities, it's still that tradition endures. That's fascinating. The Apostle Paul is frequently maligned as a chauvinist but he's also a progressive in his time if you mm-hmm. if you want to look at everything with respect to the first century first corinthians 7 4 paul writes for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does at which everyone in that city of corinth would say yeah duh i knew that of course i own my wife but then she's my property but then the second half of the verse so the first half of the verse makes us squeam, squeamish yeah. today, yeah. whereas back then it would have fit in. And then the second half of the verse says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. They would have been shocked to hear that because the thought of a woman having authority over a man's body, what is this weird liberal, well, I don't even know if they would use the word liberal, but like wacky idea. And yet today... We wouldn't trust either. Today we say, I have authority over my body. Nobody nobody can tell me what to do with my body. And you have authority over your body. The Bible says, no, not in marriage. In marriage, you have to trust each other to give each other authority over each other's bodies, yeah. you know, which is mm-hmm. really a radical statement. Um, but if you do that, that is the way of love. Because then you are able to love your neighbor as yourself, even sexually within marriage, which is what First Corinthians 7 is talking all about. One other last point that I, I wanted to make is that so often we think of ancient people as primitive. And I understand why we, we do that, because they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have iPhones to look up cat videos on. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Yeah, they couldn't watch cat videos and, and, uh, and squander all their time on Netflix binges like we can. But what's interesting is when I went to an ancient city... I went to see Ephesus some years ago, and you know I found that there were public toilets there in ancient Ephesus. There were ruins of public toilets. And what was funny about the public toilets is that they were built over a sewage system, so the, the sewage was always running. The water was always running. They had running water. You go up to like where the rich people lived, they had water in their homes coming down from aqueducts, piping it in from miles away. And... So you did have running water, literally running, not like a faucet, but like the water's always running. And then it goes down to the sewage and out to the city. Some of these rich people, they had heated floors in their houses. They had devised ways to build fires and they built their floor on a platform and they had little chimneys in the four corners of the room and they distributed the smoke under the floor so that they had heated floors. They would have indoor bathtubs they would have indoor bathtubs they would have 
incredibly sophisticated outdoor bathtubs. Bathhouses. Bathhouses, thank you. Where you had the calidorium, the tepidorium, and the frigidorium, which is the hot, the tepid, and the cold baths. I could have figured that out, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Latin and English, pretty similar. So... Look, and they had divorce, and they had abortions. They didn't have the same surgical pr- procedures we have today, but they had ways of getting that done, believe me. We can, and you can read about it. I mean, ancient people are not just a bunch of morons. They were intelligent people. They're, they're probably not more intelligent or less intelligent than you and I. So, so what I'm saying is, I think we need to recognize that... Uh, what we read in the Bible, you take, for example, Samson and Delilah. That story has so much to teach us today about not worshiping your spouse or worshiping romance as the end-all, be-all, and recognizing that sometimes getting an outside perspective can really help on a dysfunctional <laughs> relationship. Or you look at the story of Joseph and all the hardship he went through, and you see that he was able to keep his faith through that, and he was able to handle power when it finally came his way without being corrupted by it. I mean, there are so many of these incidents in the Bible that have so much to speak to us today. I don't think you can say the Bible is too antiquated to give us guidance today. I think it's just the opposite. When I hear some newfangled idea about how you're going to fix all your problems that's what makes me suspicious. Mm-hmm. Not something, some sort of time-tested ancient book that's not made in America, that's not written in English, that is not just for white people or Jewish people or black people or whatever. It's, it's a pan-cultural book. I mean, it, it is enfleshed among the Hebrew people. That is true. But it is for everyone. Mm-hmm. And you really do see the movement spread beyond racial barriers right in the first century after the resurrection of Jesus. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We really appreciate your taking time to listen to this and to give us feedback. And please leave us a comment. We read every single one. And and we try to incorporate what you guys are commenting on and and what you guys say wherever possible. Uh, We really appreciate the feedback. So thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, guys. We hope we've um, given you something to think about. And please, always, as always, feel free to join the conversation. We love you guys. I'm going to say uh, goodbye in Maori, which is the language of the native people of New Zealand. Boro poro aki. That was awesome. That was cool. My aunt was from New Zealand with us this weekend. <clears throat> Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you have any thoughts on this important subject of the relevance of the Bible or anything related to these objections to Christianity, or even want to suggest another objection that you would like for us to cover, please drop us a line at restitutio.org. You can find Offscript. The Bible is too antiquated, and you can put a comment there. If you haven't already, please give us a review in iTunes. It really helps expand the audience, and we'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.